Hi, this is Mike from the Now It's Dark Movie Podcast, and you're listening to part two of our discussion of The End of the Movies, a New York Times article written by Ross Dowthat. We're joined by John W. Gunnison, the co-founder of the Politics Plus Media 101 podcast. Put in the plus sign to find it. According to Dowthat, we're not just looking at the decline of the Oscars, but of movies themselves. And while movies will always be made, the end of the movies has arrived because they're no longer the iconic cultural force of years past. Whether the years we're talking about are the 1940s and 50s or years as recent as 1999 and 2010, the influence of movies is waning. If you'd like to hear part one, it's available for free almost anywhere you get your podcasts. If you'd like to keep on listening, hello and welcome to our conversation already in progress. I mentioned before kind of the internationalization of the academy may may be following cultural or corporate trends i sometimes wonder if like other american corporations like studios are really starting to get better at reaching global markets and not just having kind of a one-size-fits-all like maybe they're also seeing like there's a limit in how much we can do with this kind of marvel model you know where it's it, it appeals to everyone so maybe we bring in a Bong Joon-ho or, you know, maybe we bring in a Joaquin Trier or something like that to try to, you know, make a studio film that's more tailored for these specific markets we want to work in. Like, I, I think it it may be part of an effort to bring some directors uh, and filmmakers and, and craftspeople into the orbit of this kind of, you know, Hollywood studio system so that it can deal with this challenge of like competing against really a, a film industry that doesn't have to export anything to kind of thrive. Yeah, I think that some of that has always kind of happened and is happening now. Um, if you look back kind of in the earlier days of the American industry, we um, did peel off a lot of great talent from other industries. You uh, Starting with some of the German expressionists, you know, we brought over F.W. Murnau, uh, Lobitz. Uh, there's a third. Fritz that, Lang. Um, yeah, Fritz Lang. Uh, also, uh, Kurosawa did some stuff in America. Jean Renoir was based in the U.S. for a while and made a bunch of uh, films in America. Uh, and um, I think Bon John O, who you mentioned, is another example of this. I mean, he's made English language movies. Uh, he worked with Netflix on a big production that had a very, very big budget. Park Chanuk as well made a Stoker. Yeah, Park Chanuk. Yeah, yeah, he did too. And um, I think that Bong is actually working with HBO and Warner on an uh, adaptation of Parasite, a U.S. set adaptation of Parasite. And he's working with Adam McKay, um, which is a pretty <laughs> interesting combination. Uh, you know, two people who are not very subtle in the way that they approach uh, social uh, critique. Uh, <laughs> uh, so maybe they're a match. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that there's always kind of interest in taking the best of global talent and, you know, seeing uh, how they do in the American studio system. Marvel actually are people who do this, but they tend to go for uh, people who are a little bit less experienced. So they'll bring on someone who's at the very start of their career. Uh, and they did that with uh, Taika Waititi, for example, um, and uh, Chloe Zhao. I mean, those are probably aren't even really the best examples because they had made recognizable landmark movies. Um, but uh, the guy who did Short Term 12, uh, Dustin uh, Daniel Cretton, I think his name is, like they gave him a movie. Uh, they give movies to a few people who are the sorts of people that you're describing. Um, they think that it's kind of a nice feather in their cap uh, creatively and artistically. 
But I think that we find that those directors don't really end up with a ton of creative control when they're working inside of the Marvel house with its very prominent house style. Well, because we've heard of people getting fired because they might have creative disagreements. That happens. Uh, it did happen with Marvel a couple times, like uh, with uh, Edgar Wright. But it happens much more often at Lucasfilm, where it happens with almost everyone they hire. Yeah, and I think that's uh, you know what that's a lot of what Martin Scorsese was talking about when yeah. he was talking about what is and isn't cinema and things. And um, I mean, that's just a small part of it. But yeah, it's when you have someone who. Um, I think uh, Joss Whedon's another one. I mean, he was more of a writer than a director, but they gave him the first Avengers movie. Well, he's a television guy. Uh, he, he was a guy who was in um, kind of like that early aughts uh, style television. And the movie that he made for Marvel feels like a television episode. It's it, it's not very cinematic. Yeah. Pull the strings, right? Indeed. Uh, I think that it was described in some stuff I read about uh, Lucasfilm, I think, and maybe Marvel as well. That usually when they bring in these directors, what the directors end up really just doing is directing the actors. And the rest of the movie is made by the producers and the uh, effects house and so on. And often the directors don't even really know what it's going to look like as they're directing. Um, because uh, even the, the settings of specific scenes aren't even determined until post-production. Whether it's going to be interior or exterior even. So they'll direct a scene of people talking. And they'll find out when they watch the movie at the premiere, whether it took place in a boardroom or whether it took place at a park, uh, because they didn't even know when they were directing it. Madness. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's kind of insane. Um, it, yeah. there's, there's kind of a connection here, too, I think, to the other side of this equation, which is audiences. You kind of mentioned like um, supply, maybe outstripping demand and stuff like that. I, I think there's also been some really interesting... Uh, audiences have kind of been reshaped in a way that, you know, I, I kind of alluded to before this kind of adult plus children demographic that studios have kind of uh, went for, uh, especially, you know, kind of like action movies, Marvel movies, franchise pictures and stuff like that. And I've noticed Dahat mentions this in a, in a one section of his op-ed where he talks about kind of, you know, adolescent tastes overtaking um, kind of adult tastes. And, you know, it's that's kind of an open question as to what that means. I, I, I wanted to mention another writer, Freddie DeBoer. I remember reading an essay of his where he talked about how kind of like this adult responsibility to consume adult art, you know, this idea that you just can't eat candy all the time has kind of disappeared in a sense. And whether it's music with pop or, or Marvel movies, um, that's kind of collapsed at the same time that kind of like youth culture has collapsed. Because I mean, you know, with New Wave and the, the French New Wave and New Hollywood and stuff like that, you know, there was a lot of avant-garde sorts of um, films that came out of uh, the desire to see something new that was emanating from youth culture. And, you know, you see the, with you see this with uh, Godard and, and Truffaut and then, you know, Scorsese and, and even some Coppola films. And I think as studios have pursued this kind of adult plus children demographic, um, this kind of like high-minded adult responsibility to consume art, or at the very least, this sort of social norm that adults should watch kind of more serious movies. Um has also coincided with 
kind of a decline in the influence of youth culture, um, whatever that even means. I mean, it's such a fractured social landscape we have now where, you know, with the internet, things are so kind of fragmented. But I do wonder if if the audience, um, you know, the influence of how the audience and the sociology of the audience has, has changed is, is also a huge factor driving this. Yeah, I think that you make a really good point, which is about how, uh, you know, demand uh, and um, production, uh, it doesn't only move in one direction. Like it's not just a downward stream of this is what the demand wants and this is what we make. By making things and marketing them, uh, the producers and distributors, they are shaping demand. Like it's more like a circle than it is uh, a stream. And um, the studios have done a lot to shape demand in this a little bit more infantilized direction over time. Um, another person uh, you mentioned, uh, was it Fred DeBoer, I think was the name of the writer you mentioned? Another one who said something about this, and I wish I had the quote in front of me because it was very well said, but Jodie Foster, she made a really good point about how they're shaping demand and they have a responsibility to try to cultivate a demand that's a little bit more um, sophisticated than the one that they have been. I, I think they, that- the filmmakers- uh, yeah, the filmmakers and also, you know, the studios yep. and distributors. Right. right. Um, I, so I think that this, I've got a theory about part of why this happened. Uh, and it is actually linked to the more long-term uh, shift to uh, home viewing. So as we were talking about before, even though there's a lot of focus on the streaming and how streaming has led to the shift to home viewing, it did start earlier with television. And the American cinema market peaked in the 1930s and 40s. Part of the reason that we've seen the shift to these uh, franchises and the more uh, child-driven uh, uh, focus of the studios is because uh, the uh, American uh, cinema uh, exhibition was already stagnating in uh, as early as the 60s and 70s, and the studios wanted to find other ways to make money, and one of the ways that they could was through merchandising. So these ancillary markets became important as early as that. And this is part of why Star Wars became such an important franchise, uh, because it had so much merchandising potential. They knew that they couldn't keep growing, um, at least in the domestic market, through exhibition. Exhibition was never going to grow ever again. It it stopped growing in the 40s. Uh, so in order to find growth, you tap into these ancillary markets. Uh, home video is one of them. Uh, television is another one. Uh, merchandising is a big one. And so if you want to make money in merchandising, um, that's going to affect the kinds of movies that you make and market and how you market them. So that's part of why the studios have moved in that direction. Another one, uh, Tim, that you referred to is just the way that uh, youth um, operate in the world today and uh, the kind of uh, youth culture of the 1960s and 70s doesn't really exist in the same way. And that isn't only because of what uh, happens in, uh, you know, the uh, entertainment landscape. It has a lot to do with other social factors. And, you know, some of the writers that are writing about this kind of stuff is like uh, Derek Thompson at The Atlantic. Um, you know, if you poll young people today, uh, you find that fewer young people are, are drinking, fewer young people are doing drugs, fewer young people are getting a driver license um, because people are able to communicate and socialize so easily through the internet. There's a lot less of that uh, going outside, exploring, taking risks than there used to be. 
So the youth culture that existed in the mid-century really has, in a lot of ways, kind of disappeared. And that's another aspect of this. But I think that um, the merchandising and the shift to the ancillary markets, that, that's a big part of the story, too. Something that um, I, don't, I don't even know if um, <clears throat> Dow that even points out, but something that I think is perhaps true is that, you know, a lot of people who are, say, I don't know, like in their early to mid 30s today, you know, back, I feel like years and years ago, you know, you grew up as a kid, maybe you're watching Mickey Mouse or something, and then you just kind of wouldn't anymore. But there are still a lot of people now <laughs> who still play the Pokemon video games. And I mean, I say that as someone who owns the Nintendo Switch, I might get one of the Pokemon games as well. So I'm not judging anybody. Um, but like, they still, you know, they still hold on very dearly to things that they used to watch and enjoy as kids, you know, and, you know, companies like Disney know this too. When they make the live action remakes, they're appealing to children now and people who watched the originals when they were children before, right? Even they, like people going out on their 35th birthday, they want to go see the new Lion King. Uh, let and me, let me I present think that's you kind of changed. That's kind of a, a kind of, um, you know, maybe kind of progress this kind of you know lack of adult content actually earlier john you used the word adult movie and i kind of sometimes lament that that term doesn't refer to you know movies yeah Yeah. refers to porn it's a shame i would like to talk about adult movies meaning like not even tarkovsky just serendipity yeah (laughs) 20 years ago that's an adult movie you know the adult movie isn't what robert de niro brings uh, Civil Shepherd to see in Taxi Driver. The adult movie is <laughs> yeah. Taxi Driver, yeah? Uh, yeah. Let me, oh, yeah, just exactly. thinking of that. Yeah. yeah. Let me present you a theory here. I, I've got a theory about just what you're talking about, Mike, which is that uh, adults are still watching uh, ch- childish things like Mickey Mouse at a younger age than uh, they should miss it. And um, that, I think, uh, it, I think that the window for nostalgia has really shortened. And I think that part of that is because of the overload and the shortening attention span. So the age at which you start missing things and feeling nostalgic um, is becoming so much younger. Like I remember when BuzzFeed was getting really popular, a lot of how that they grew their clicks and growth was all these articles about, remember the 90s, all these things that you Mm. missed from the 90s. And I, I was sitting there in 2009 being like, the nineties wasn't that long ago. How did we already miss it? And I think it's because yeah. there, so many things are happening and we're being exposed to so much stuff all the time. Uh, and our attention spans are so much shorter that things that weren't that long ago feel longer ago. Uh, and many more things have happened in the interim. So it used to be perhaps that you would have to go 20, 30 years before you start reminiscing nostalgically about something. But now that happens in a much shorter span. Mm. Yeah, that could be. Sometimes, you know, as we're talking about this, I just when we when I talk about when I personally talk about the end of the movies, you know, I remember growing up and like every the start of every weekend, part of the morning paper would be this entertainment booklet. Yeah. And I'd, like I'd always want to just wake up and see what are the new movies that are out? You know, what are the new movies? And, you know, every, you know, some weeks are better than others. But generally, I was really excited to see what the new movies were. They were usually, you know, hey, here's this new comedy with someone. Oh, here's this kind of drama. And they were usually kind of what I imagine the movies should be, just kind of standalone pictures 
a lot of times they've got big actors. They're usually grounded in reality in some way, shape or form. You might have the odd, you know, blockbuster piece of schlock now and then, because there's always been schlock. Let's not pretend that there hasn't been. Um, and I don't know. I feel like that's the part that's really disappeared these days is just, I don't know, that kind of variety. I feel like if you were to go to Google and just type in 1997 movies and then type in 2021 movies, like the, the pictures that you would get, it would just be a very stark contrast. Like the variety is gone. So this is part of why I think that the specific companies that win the streaming wars, it matters who wins. Um, because Netflix had been dealing with imposter syndrome because they were the first mover in the streaming space. They wanted to prove that they were a real movie studio. And that's part of why they made these awards movies that we were talking about and lavished so much money on them. It's also part of why they kept on trying to prove that they could make the kinds of movies that you're describing, Mike. They tried making Mm -hmm. rom-coms. They tried making standalone action pictures. Uh, one of which I actually did a screen test for, uh, Six Underground. I, I signed an NDA, so <laughs> but I can talk about it. <laughs> the movie's been released. Uh, but anyway, um, they wanted to prove that they could make all the kinds of movies that you're describing, Mike, the movies that existed and thrived in the 1990s. This was a big mm-hmm. part of their mission. We're a real studio. Uh, some of the stuff that they made along these lines was terrible, like the one that I did a screen test for that I just mentioned. Um, other ones uh, <laughs> uh, were pretty good. Um, there was a rom-com that they did uh, um, called uh, Set It Up. Great example of like what we all missed about the 1990s rom-coms. And here we are with the premature nostalgia again. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> these other players don't want to do these things. So if we have Discovery taking over Warner, they've never cared about having uh, diversity of offerings. The way Discovery operate are cheap, profitable, disposable. Um, and then Disney... Disney have no diversity in what they um, develop and distribute, right? It's all intellectual property driven and franchise driven. That's the the shining star for Disney. And um, even before streaming, Disney showed that they might experiment with uh, adult-oriented cinema and then lose interest. Um, do you remember Touchstone Pictures? I was just going to say, I don't. I feel like I haven't seen a Touchstone picture in 20 years. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, and with Miramax too, uh, Disney were, I think, in, involved there for a little while and then it kind of petered out as well. So, uh, you know, if Netflix was going to be the one to win all of this, maybe there would still be a little bit more hope for the kinds of movies that you're talking about. But if it's going to be a, the Discovery version of Warner Brothers and Disney, I mean, these sorts of things really might completely disappear. Yeah, for a company that's that like educated people for so long, it's weird to think of Discovery as a bad guy. Uh, well, <laughs> check out their programming sometime. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to mention it in regards to Disney. Um, you know, Nightmare Alley is is a film we should mention too, in in yeah. the context of a film that that should have done much better than it did, and and part of the speculation over why it may not have done so well. Um, I think you brought this up in the interview with Justin Chang is, is um, Fox searchlight and the fact that they've uh, you know, when Fox was acquired by Disney, this, this entity, which had shepherded so many great films into existence. And this searchlight is, is kind of like a more art house or I guess, serious minded film branch of, of Fox. Um, And yeah, you guys were kind of talking about how maybe like, the fact that 
Disney had to release these Fox Searchlight films and the they weren't exactly super enthusiastic about it, maybe, because it wasn't their idea. It was just something that kind of acquired. Yeah, um, it, I think this is a great example. And it illustrates uh, some a, a lot of different things that are very important to all of this. So I remember uh, seven years ago, I was talking to a guy at the Weinstein Company uh, who is a creative executive there. And I was saying to him, like, you know, you guys, uh, you know, you're a big player in the awards race, but Fox Searchlight's really the top dogs, not you. You know, it's Fox Searchlight. They're the ones you guys haven't won Best Picture in a little while. They're winning Best Picture all the time. I, this was pretty soon after uh, 12 Years a Slave, Birdman. And he said to me, like, well, that's not really the case because Fox Searchlight, they don't develop. They just acquire and distribute. You know, they go to a film festival and find a movie and pay $20 million to get the rights and then distribute it. And uh, I think that that is partly true. But it also reminds us that distribution and marketing matter a lot. We're talking about how uh, the studios create demand through marketing. And these kinds of movies that Fox Searchlight identified, acquired, and then marketed and distributed. I mean, the only reason that many people know that these movies exist was because Fox Searchlight did those things for those movies. And um, th this acquisition uh, that Disney have done of uh, Fox Searchlight and the way Nightmare Alley was treated, like it, it, it demonstrates the importance of distribution and marketing, right? Because Nightmare Alley already existed. It, uh, the production costs had already been spent. It was just up to Disney to sell the movie and to get people to care about it. And they failed at doing that. And uh, that is a really important part of the picture. So even if they, even, you know, even the conception of a project aside, there's all these other things that really matter uh, for getting the movie in front of people's eyes and uh, making it culturally relevant. And that's the kind of work that uh, it doesn't seem that some of the remaining players are really willing or able to do anymore. Well, I, I thought it, it might be good to kind of transition to talking about, um, you know, maybe our, our best films of 2021, since we've we've kind of talked about a lot of bad things happening in you know the the movie industry uh yeah. it might be good to kind of focus on just celebrating you know the many good films which are still being made and uh some of which got recognized by the academy and, and some of which didn't um yeah, so that, yeah. i thought it might I, be interesting just to yeah. talk about that yeah i mean and you're right is that there was uh, and we kind of started off the conversation by uh, going through some of the titles but there really was a, a lot of pretty good stuff in 2021 and Part of the reason for that, I think, is has to do with uh, some of these uh, industrial trends. Uh, and that's because uh, a lot of releases that were planned for 2020 got delayed because of COVID. So right. in 2021 and 2022, we're actually getting uh, some of the backlog of uh, high-profile releases that might have been a little bit more spread out. So we're getting some pretty good stuff all at once right now. And uh, at the end of last year, there really was a lot to watch and catch up on. Two Ridley Scott movies in one year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, neither of which I've actually seen. So you can tell me uh, if I should watch them. I, you know, they're, they're entertaining. I, I, I think, um, was well, that one of the ones is the last duel, the last duel yeah. in the house of Gucci. Yeah. So if you're going in looking for Blade Runner or Alien, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Um, if you're going in looking to be entertained and have a tolerance for 
cheesiness, I guess we'll say. Um, yeah. It, they're very entertaining movies. I mean, I think The Last Duel, um, the worst thing about it is it tries to implement this Rashomon-type concept and just doesn't commit. I mean, the points of view are too similar for it to really make any sense. Um, but The Duel itself, I mean, it lives up to the title. The Last Duel they have is really entertaining. It's really good. Um, the House of Gucci... I mean, I wanted to turn it off after the first 15 minutes because I have this thing about people speaking English in the accent they're pretending to be talking in, you know, like (laughs) Adam Driver speaking, you know, like English in an Italian accent and Lady Gaga doing the same. It's like (laughs) I find that very cringeworthy. Um, But once I got over that, I'm like, you know, this movie is really cheesy and really fun and it's over the top and ridiculous, but I, I really like had fun, I guess with it. Uh, didn't make my top 10 list, either one of them, but mm-hmm. I thought, um, they were kind of maligned in a slightly unfair way. I, I think Ridley's response to the, um, the lack of response these movies got or the lack of audience was, was uh, pretty overhanded, but I, I, I think they weren't deserving of the uh, scathing criticism they got from some corners. The thing that annoys me with language is when they speak, they're supposed to be, you know, non-English speakers and they speak English throughout the movie, but then they'll just be these little tiny bits that are in the language they're supposed to be speaking. Like in Shokola, Alfred Molina, everyone is speaking English, but then Alfred Molina is greeting everyone to church by saying bonjour the fact that you're speaking French here means that you can all speak French, but you're choosing not to. (laughs) It's funny to see a non-English language movie that deals with the same uh, problem or the same question. And an example of this is uh, Aguirre, the wrath of God. So all the characters are, are Spanish, uh, but they're speaking in German. And as an English speaker, you watch it and you think it's a little odd. And then you remember, well, this is what a lot of English language movies are like, right? Right. It's ancient Roman. They're speaking English, you know, so it's the same sort of thing. But it's funny to see. You just put a British accent on it and it's fine. Well, that's the most ridiculous thing of all when they're playing uh, ancient Rome or biblical and they do English accents because they think that that's more appropriate than American. Um, Right. You know who I think (laughs) is actually good? And this kind of brings us back to the 2021 uh, someone who approaches this uh, in a more intelligent way is uh, Wes Anderson when he does mm. movies that take place in a uh, a place that is not English speaking. He lets all of the American actors use American accents and it's much more suitable. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. He does that really well. I, I was thinking of Paths of Glory too, uh, Kubrick and... And for some reason, yeah. Spartacus too, because I was I always found it funny that Tony Curtis can't quite hide the fact that he he's from New York in that film, and I don't know, I just find that way more entertaining than him trying to fake it, you know? Yeah. That, or how about Willem yeah. Dafoe in The Last Temptation of Christ, who keeps talking about God? Yeah, I just watched that uh, last week on Good Friday. Yeah, great movie. Yeah, God. But I think yeah. Harvey Keitel as Judas Iscariot. That's probably an even yeah. more amusing piece of casting. <laughs> I want to give a shout out to a movie that I saw at Biff that got no attention, but it was really good. And if you can, you should both watch it. Um, It's a joint French and Japanese production called Onoda 10,000 Nights in the Jungle. And John, have you heard of this? I've never heard of this movie. I'll look it up. Okay. It got like a last time I checked, it was like 100 on Rotten Tomatoes. But I don't know. It had like four reviews maybe, but it was uh, good. But I mean, it's. 
the Onoda guy is a fella who basically doesn't doesn't believe that the war has, is over and he's a Japanese soldier and he's with his his other soldiers and they're oh, just yeah. going to keep guarding this Filipino island until they come back for him and um, he spends 10,000 nights there thinking that the war is still on and it's like 1973 and he's still there um, but it's just this it's a bit like castaway in yeah. that like it's just this I'm stuck on an island thing but you know, it's not, you know, he chose to go there in the first place and he's, he's just not leaving. And, um, you know, just the, the way that they, they showed those years passing and the way that they passed the time and the, the way that he kind of eventually gets to be alone. Cause he doesn't start off alone. Um, it's just a fascinating, fascinating movie. And it was like three hours long, but the time flew by. It was, it was so good. Um, something kind of intangible about it that just sort of, I don't know, just reminded me of something from that you might've seen in the sixties or something like that. Uh, it was just, good. it was quite an epic and it was, it was beautiful. It was wonderful. Well, that sounds, that's a quite a recommendation. I'll have to, uh, I'll have to keep my eye on this one. See if I get the chance to check it out sometime. Yeah. Especially, I mean, if you can, if you have a chance to go see it on in a theater as well, uh, then I'd recommend it too, because it is beautiful. They, I think they did shot it in location or they might've filmed it somewhere in Japan, but, um, you know, it's it certainly looks beautiful. It is meant to be seen on a big screen. I, I've probably not seen quite as many 2021 releases as, as you guys have, uh, because I wasn't able to go to any festivals or anything. I was mostly relying on uh, the Boston uh, area cinema scene, which is really quite good. But um, I, you know, I didn't have uh, anything like Biff. So and I also don't really have a top 10, but I'm I'm very keen to hear uh, some of the other recommendations that, that you guys have. Well, I, I wanted to shout out a, a couple of movies. Um, you know, in the context of, of accents, I guess, I would probably bring up Spencer. Um, it, it didn't get ignored. And I don't think it's a, a fantastic film. Um, but I think Kristen Stewart's performance is really good. I think her, her dedication to the character, her accent is, is really good. And uh, Johnny Greenwood's score. I mean, he did, uh, I mean, Licorice Pizza, I guess that counts. He did one track on it. Um, mm. But he did two really good scores this year. And Spencer was one of them. Um, it's this weird sort of shift between jazz and classical music and, and kind of this, you know, regal sounding uh, classical music with harpsichords and stuff like that. And does it in a way that that really expresses the psychology of this character, um, Princess Diana, where you really just get the sense that she's losing her mind, like she's going insane. And as as kind of a psychological uh, character study, I think it's really interesting, a really uncomfortable film to watch, um, but definitely worth seeing. Um, so that was definitely one movie that that I would recommend. That was I put that at like number ten tied with West Side Story, actually, because I, I really like yeah. that in a kind of old school Hollywood sort of way. I, I have seen both of those. I'm not quite as keen on Spencer, I think, as you are. I found it a little bit uh, monotonous, uh, thematically, stylistically, mm -hmm. tonally. Um, I thought mm -hmm. that it was making really the same point over and over again over its, uh, over its runtime. But there is mm -hmm. certainly a lot to admire about it. And you know, it's an interesting concept, even though perhaps it would have been better suited uh, as an essay or a short film than an entire feature film. 
Yeah, that's a good point. It really depends on how much you, I guess, commit to the or or enjoy the initial conceit. Because you're right, it doesn't yeah. stray too much from that. And I, and I think that for some audiences, it can be a little bit uphill to convince them that uh, they, you know, the story of the sad aristocrat is, um, you know, something <laughs> that deserves their utmost, um, you know, sympathy. Yes, yes. Um, there's major caveats with that come with this recommendation, but as a stylistic exercise, I would say it's worth um, trying out. Yeah, I think West Side Story might have been my favorite movie that I saw this year. Um, but you know, I'm I'm I come from a theater background, and tonight is probably my favorite show tune ever. And when it's done well, I weep, and I it was, and I did. <laughs> yeah. So that was uh, your number one, Mike. Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, um, you know, I was tell you know I started up off this podcast by telling Tim that you know I had I mean he knows, but I mean I had a. I had a baby at the very beginning of the year, so I too maybe not have gotten around to as many movies as I would have liked, um, or as I would have if I didn't. But most of the 2021 movies I saw were at the Busan International Film Festival, and uh, West Side Story I actually saw just a few months ago in uh, early 2022. But uh, yeah, I mean, I thought it was just so wonderfully done. Yeah, and they really hit all. Um, all the right notes. And I don't mean that in a pun, uh, but I just say it really just, uh, they did a very, very good job with it. And I kind of think that's now the definitive edition of that musical on film. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, I like that one quite a lot as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I yeah. think that, um, it does actually make a pretty interesting case for the value of, I don't know if remake is really the, the right term, uh, but revisit. No, it's, it's just another adaptation. It's like when you make yeah. another adaptation of a book, yeah. like it's not, it's well, not a remake. It's another yeah, that's version. sort of what I uh, kind of what I uh, meant to say there was that often uh, I think uh, audiences look a little bit askance at things that they could categorize as a remake. But if you think about it in the context of a Broadway play, uh, certainly um, you know Broadway plays are not limited to one interpretation. Um, they're so often mm. restaged. Uh, can you imagine if yeah. after the first uh, run of Hamlet, uh, we decided that uh, it would be inappropriate to recast it and restage it? Uh, yeah. But um, and because you mentioned the music, I, you know, it's perhaps uh, poetic or fitting that this movie did come out very soon after the death of Sondheim. And uh, yeah. Sondheim yeah. was also memorably depicted as a character in another movie that came out this year, which was uh, Tick, Tick, Boom by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And he was played mm-hmm. by... Uh, Bradley Whitford, uh, which okay. was kind of a fun bit of casting. Yeah, West Side Story is a, a, it was, you know, Spielberg at the the height of his craft. I think like he was he was really in yeah. command of. I, I always thought he was really underrated as as someone who staged action. Like um, yeah, he he's just incredibly um, adept at blocking. And staging, uh, you know, you can watch scenes from Jaws or Indiana Jones. I think Steven Soderbergh actually did this where he he took out all the color and put in his own soundtrack for Indiana Jones just as an exercise to get you to pay attention to the blocking and the camera movements. Hmm. And there's so many times where he's using one takes in a way that doesn't feel showy and it's just perfectly executed. Um. And he's, that's a really underrated aspect of him because, you know, his movies have 
dominated the box office for so long. And, and, you know, I, I think his ability as a craftsman is, is underrated to this day. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned the, the one take thing, because just like you've kind of implied, I think in the subtext of uh, what you're complimenting there is that you're listening to an edited version of this episode. Check out patreon.com slash now it's dark to hear over 30 minutes of additional content, including our thoughts on other great 2021 films like Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza, Gaspar Noé's Vortex, Sean Baker's Red Rocket, and more, as well as our final thoughts on what the future of movie going might look like. For as little as $1.50 a month, you can get access to our full back catalog, as well as the full versions of all episodes going forward. Once again, that's patreon.com slash nowitsdark. I see comments on Twitter about movies a lot that make me think and help me understand movies, just like I do about the news. But, um, you know, I still appreciate that I'm going to do an even better job if I read a long-form piece in a magazine, rather than relying entirely on the on the wisdom of the crowd. And uh, I hope that uh, people um, will learn how to do that, not just for movies, but for all other kinds of information. Well, listen, I, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on here, um, you know, and, and giving us your, your insight. Uh, you, you know, you brought so much uh, in terms of interesting analysis to this. And I feel both like comforted about the future of the movies and also like deeply afraid so <laughs> i guess that's a sign of like good analysis well I'm, I'm i'm sorry that i took so much time here because um you're in a time zone that uh is more difficult than the one that i'm in uh now that we're at the two hour mark so <laughs> i apologize <laughs> for being so long-winded about much of this no it's, it's it's very insightful john thanks so much for coming on and uh and stopping by Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I very much enjoyed it. You know, I think a lot about these uh, sorts of things and uh, I very much appreciate uh, having the opportunity to think them through and talk them through with uh, the two of you. Thank you.